Hey there, Marcus here. It is my joy and privilege to serve as pastor here at Awaken Church in Juneau, Alaska. I pray that in the next few moments, the, the word of God proclaimed is a blessing to you and is nourishing to your soul. But we believe here at Awaken that one of the ordinary means of God's grace in our life is the gathering of the people of God. We believe that it's in the gathering that, that we're known and that we know one another. That it's in the gathering that, that we are shaped and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you this Sunday to come and join us. Come and worship with us. But for now, I pray that you're encouraged by this sermon. God bless. It always works out that uh, every time we start to run out of space, we come a across a, a topic that clears space. So this morning we're going to talk about the role of men and women in the home and we'll free up a few chairs. So um, there we go. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and when you get there uh, this morning, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning? Uh, we do this every once in a while as just a, a, a reminder that we're not just reading an ancient text. We are reading the Word of God together. So Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up in verse 22 again this morning. <laughs> this is the Word of the Lord. Let's start actually in uh, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another, out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we ask again this morning as we come to your word and as we for uh, another week consider uh, the issue of marriage and divorce and now this week look specifically at the roles of husbands and wives within the context of marriage, uh, I ask that you would graciously help us to see your word for what it is, I ask that you would uh, illuminate the eyes of our hearts to, to see the truth, that all of the cultural influences that we um, inevitably are influenced by and that 
are, are around us all the time would pale in comparison to your good design for human flourishing. I, I pray that we would see uh, your word for what it is, as profitable, as uh, for our good, for our joy. And I pray that we would um, understand that the way that you've designed everything in your creation is for the glory and renown of your name, and marriage is no different. And so we, we don't want our own will. We, we don't want to do things our way. We want to abide by your word. You said that if we love you, we will keep your commandments, and, and we remember that it is for our good. And so help us this morning. We, we do need your help. I need your help. And so we pray now that you would help me to not be particularly concerned about what um, uh, might be thought of me this morning and who might be offended by what we look at together and who w will not. I, I pray that all of that would fade now to the back of my mind and the only thing that would come forward is your word. Uh, that is what is best for all of us. And so I ask in your name, amen, amen. So if you're just coming in this morning, you're at a little bit of a disadvantage. We're at week uh, three together and looking at uh, the issue of marriage and divorce. Uh, we have been for a, a long time now, for, uh, for close to a year, we've been going through the gospel according to Mark together. And as we started uh, the new year, we ended up in Mark chapter 10. And so we started the, the new year off with a bang because uh, the Pharisees asked Jesus uh, if di divorce is permitted by God or not. And so Jesus gives an explanation to the Pharisees. And, and so we've been looking at, um, at the issue of divorce. We started there at least, but then I, I realized that there's, there's so much that really needs to be said, so much we need to talk about. Uh, when it comes to not, not just the issue of divorce, but marriage itself, God's design behind marriage. Because we really don't understand why divorce is an issue uh, until we understand what marriage is all about according to Scripture. Not according to culture. I could really care less about that. What, what it is according to Scripture. And so this morning, what we're going to do, this is week three, and I don't, I don't get a week four. Because this is not, it's supposed to be a series through Mark, not a mini-series on marriage. So I have, I have one more uh, week this morning to try to help us to understand at least the surface on what marriage is, and now particularly this morning, what the role of, of husbands and the role of wives are within the context of marriage. So I'm talking fast because I got a clock, and, um, and so here we go. A little bit of, of recap to help get us on, on track and in the right, uh, the right thread of thinking. So here's what we've understood so far this morning or I mean so far in our, in our study, is this, that from the beginning of time, let me say that again, from the beginning of time, as in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. The beginning of time, marriage was designed and instituted by God with the intention, the purpose of manifesting or putting on display the relationship between Christ and his covenant people, his bride, the church. The purpose and design behind marriage from the beginning is not ultimately human flourishing. 
It's not ultimately because it is not good that man should be alone, uh, and, and, and so I will make a helper fit for him. That, that's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose behind God's design for marriage is that there would be this living, active, participatory picture of the gospel being displayed in homes all across the world. That people would look at their own marriages and that unbelievers would look at the marriages of Christians and they would see the gospel on display. They would see the dynamic and the relationship between Christ Jesus our Lord and his covenant people, keyword covenant people, his bride, which is the church, the people of God. Marriage is a living picture. It is a display. It is, it is a, a metaphor, if you will, that we participate in. Now, what we've tried to understand the last few weeks together is that God did not put forth a plan of salvation to save his people through Christ Jesus and then start looking around his creation and say, hmm, now what could I use to try to explain to these people what the dynamic is between the relationship of Christ and, and the church? Oh, I know, marriage. Marriage will be a, a, a good, that's kind of similar, right? There's, there's the wife and she's participating in this role and there's the husband, he's kind of leading and he's sacrificially loving and, and that's a lot like uh, the relationship between Christ and his church. No, it, it, it's the other way around. Before time, God said, I'm going to institute this thing called marriage and here's the reason, here's the purpose. It's gonna glorify my name by there being millions and millions and millions of displays of the gospel being lived out in every home in the midst of my people across the world. That is God's intention behind marriage. Now, back in the beginning, we don't pick that up, right? Back in, in Genesis 2.24, where we read first off that, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's what we have. And so that's what they knew, and, and that's what they did, and they experienced the, the blessing of God in that. Humanity flourished within the context of the home, and we could kind of, we could go on a long rabbit trail now and, and talk about how when, when that dynamic is broken within a society, then the society around it crumbles, that it, it literally holds together the fabric of humanity inside of the home. We, we could take that thread, but I, I, that's just some kind of like political rant, and, it, and it's really not helpful. What is helpful for us this morning is to understand what God intends for our marriages to show forth. And so in our text in Mark chapter 10, Jesus begins to elaborate a bit more on Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And so as the Pharisees we saw a couple weeks ago come to Jesus and they say, you know, let, let's trap Jesus essentially and, and him telling us uh, his position on divorce and, and then part of the crowd will hate him for it no matter what he says and they ask him is divorce permitted by God and and Jesus responds to them and says well what did Moses tell you and and he kind of takes them through a, a thread of thought and essentially it, it leads to him saying three things well first off well, before the three things maybe four things 
maybe five things. I don't know. You count, I'll, I'll say them. The, the first thing is Moses gave you this, this way for divorce to take place because of your hardness of heart. In other words, because of your sin, because of the hardness of your heart, uh, Moses in the law gave a, a, a way that divorce has to be enacted if in your sin you take that route, okay? And then he goes on to say, he, here's what it's been from the beginning, and he quotes Genesis 2.24. Man will leave his wife, father and mother hold fast to his wife, the two will become one flesh. And he says this, he says that from the beginning, Jesus adds, God made them male and female. Second, that it is an indivisible union. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It is an indivisible union instituted by God. Here, here's an interesting thought. That means that every marriage within the context of a, a man and a woman as God designed it is instituted by God in a Christian home and in an unbeliever's home. That's an interesting thing to think about, right? Even though we see the brokenness of it in an unbeliever's home, there's still a, a dim, poor, mud-splattered-all-over-it canvas of the relationship between Christ and his church. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus elaborates on it a little bit. Here's why divorce is an issue. God's joined it together. But he said nothing about the picture that it's displaying. And we said last week together that isn't it interesting to think about the idea that Jesus was on earth to ransom his bride. He was on earth for the express purpose of living the life that you and I cannot live, to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God, that perfect in perfect righteousness, perfect obedience. And then on the cross, for, to literally have placed upon himself our sin and our shame. And what's worse, the wrath of the Father, the full wrath of God is poured out on the only one who could take it, the, the Son of God. He is the propitiation for our sin. The wrath of God is, is propitiated, is satisfied in Christ, on, with Christ on the cross. He came so that we could be reconciled or ransomed back to God. And here he is talking to the Pharisees. So essentially Christ was on earth to, to actually bring into existence this picture that marriage has been displaying from the beginning. And the Pharisees ask him, how can we diminish this picture through divorce? And Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, it's funny you say that because I'm actually here to ransom my bride. I, I am the Messiah, and here's what marriage actually means. It's actually pointing to this, and here's what I'm doing. Because it was not yet the appointed time. But the Apostle Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church at Ephesus and to the church at Colossae, but we're looking this morning at church at Ephesus. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he quotes as well Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. But through the apostle, God speaks to his people and records in Holy Scripture 
that from the beginning of time, the mystery of the reason behind marriage, and by the way, I remind you one more time, when the New Testament scriptures uses the word mystery, it's not talking about something that we cannot know. It's talking about something that was unknown that is now revealed. So the mystery of marriage that was unknown back in Genesis 2.24 has now at the appropriate time after Christ has come, after Christ has ransomed his bride, now is the appropriate time for the mystery to be revealed. And the Apostle Paul writes in verse 32, the mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers, that is marriage refers to Christ and the church. Christ and the church. So that's what we looked at for two weeks together. That's an hour and 40 minutes crammed into 10. And now we turn for just a little bit more time this morning and say, okay, if that's God's purpose behind marriage, and by the way, if, if you and I could just get that, right? If, if we could just have an understanding of the gospel a clear understanding of the gospel, which I know is an issue for many of us. And we need to fix that. You need to come to theological foundations to get that fixed. If, if I asked you, what is the gospel? And, and your answer is, uh, um, uh, then you're already at a disadvantage. But if we know the gospel, that we were separated from God by our sin, but in grace, at the right time, he sent forth Jesus Christ to, to live and to die and on the third day to raise from the dead, showing that the wrath of God has been satisfied, that sin has been removed for the elect, for the people of God who have believed upon the name of Jesus Christ, have been reconciled and ransomed, brought from death to life, brought from darkness to light, by grace, by grace alone, and by nothing that we deserve, nothing that we did, when we get that, get the gospel right, then it's just a small step to say, okay, so my marriage is putting that on display. How does that work? How do I do that? And if we just simply woke up every morning and you considered, uh, in regard to your spouse, or if you're single, your future spouse, how am I going to treat them in light of the gospel? And in light of my role in playing that picture, boy, we would be a massive leg up. A massive leg up. But what I want us to do this morning is to simply look at those roles and, and understand them. Because here's, here's the reality. The reality is that marriages, I know, um, within the church even, within the people of God, are not these blissful, happy, wonderful masterpiece pictures of the gospel, right? They're messy. They're, they're, they're more like pictures drawn by a two-year-old with a crayon than the Mona Lisa, right? They're a mess. They're outside the lines. They're, the coloring is all weird. There, there's issues. And I get that. I, I understand that. But what our desire should be as Christians for our marriage is that over is over the course of time, and I know many of you have, have experienced this already. I've experienced this in the 10 years that I've been married uh, to my wife, is that as the gospel penetrates us, that it begins to have an effect on our marriages, and our marriages begin to change because we are changing by the power of the gospel. So when, when we say that, uh, our, that our marriages 
are not necessarily always blissful displays of the gospel, but, in, but are in need of the gospel themselves, what we're really saying is that y- you and I need to understand and, and engage with and, and experience the power uh, of the, the, the transformation of the gospel in us. And as we are changed from one degree of glory to the next, it, it is seen in our relationship our relationships that are closest to us, uh, predominantly our relationship with our spouse and then with our children and then with our friends and our families. But if the gospel is absent in our minds, then how could we ever expect our marriages to be anything but what it looks like when two sinners beat up on each other, right? If you're wondering, are we always this blunt? The answer is yes. So welcome to Awaken Church. Let's keep, uh, let's keep going. The reason why our marriages are difficult is because they are, they are broken by sin, right? They are broken by sin. In Genesis 3.16, after Adam and Eve sin against God, directly and willfully disobey God, God addresses the serpent, and then he addresses the woman, and he says to her, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain, you will bring forth children. And then he says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, if we look over at Genesis 4-7, we see the same grammatical structure, and we see the same language where it says, um, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So in 4.7, we see this language of sin crouching at the door, waiting to overtake and control uh, uh, the man who, who falls into sin. And that exact same wording and that exact same language and grammatical structure is used in, in Genesis 3.16 when God says to the woman, your desire will be to overtake, to, uh, to usurp, to, over, to step on, to trample the God-given authority and, and position of your husband, and he will rule over you. Or in other words, he's going to try to figure out how to, how to lead as the broken, sinful person that he is as well. And, and so here's what you have from the beginning because of sin. You have marriages that are broken. You have two people who could not possibly fulfill God's good design for marriage. You have a a woman who constantly wants to say, what do you know, right? And you have a guy that is constantly trying to prove that he can actually be this provider and protector that God has designed him to be, even though he knows every day that he fails to do that right. So you have two broken people in need of the gospel trying to figure out how to put on display this image of Christ and his church. And so what we need is the gospel, the grace of God to penetrate our lives. And we need the Holy Spirit to be transforming us. And as we seek the Lord, as we seek to do his will, to know his word, as we spend time in prayer and in the scriptures and with the people of God, and we are transformed over a lifetime, the hope is that our marriage is more and more 
reflect this beautiful picture of the gospel. The great reformer Martin Luther said, Marriage is the God-appointed and legitimate union of a man and woman in hope of having children or at least for the purpose of avoiding fornication and sin and living to the glory of God. Now, if that was all that Martin Luther said, that would be a little awkward, not quite the full picture, right? Marriage is just designed for us to avoid fornication. No, there's more going on. He also said on the subject that to have peace and love in a marriage is a gift next to knowing the knowledge of the gospel. Right next to the knowledge of knowing the gospel is the peace and love that exists within a godly marriage. He also said, let the wife make her husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. Isn't that a beautiful picture of two people that actually care about each other? Despite how they feel in the moment about what a moron the other one is. I've struggled the last uh, number of weeks as I've been putting together these sermons to um, discuss together what the roles of husbands and wives are. And I feel myself even now kind of just treading and just waiting and, and almost biding as much time as I can because it, it seems so complicated. But the text is so simple. There, there are portions of Scripture that are really hard to, to get, drill down into and understand what, what's being said. There's, there's metaphors and cultural issues that you gotta, you got to dig through. Okay, well, what's the Greek? What's the, how does it tie in? It, and it's complicated, and it's difficult to, to understand. Uh, verses like the one pops in my mind is, Work out your self, salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in, in you. How can it be both? That's hard. But this is not hard. This is easy. So why does it feel so complicated? What we have in the the text this morning in relationship to the roles of men and women, husbands and wives, is laid out for us clearly and simply. And what is more, we are also given the reason why we ought to do this. God doesn't have to give us a reason, does he? He could just say, do this. It is for your good and for my glory. And much of scripture is just do this, live this way with no reason, no immediate reason given. We understand that God gives us, that his law is good, that he gives us everything for the, the glory of his name. We understand kind of his broader purposes in giving us his word. But here he tells us what to do and specifically why it is to be done. And yet it feels so complicated. And I recognize that the, the reason why it's complicated has nothing to do with grammatical gymnastics that need to be done. What makes it so complicated is because it is actually very, very personal. It's personal. It's personal for all of us. And it's personal for me because I am your pastor along with the elders of this church. I know you. I know your lives. I know your week. I know what you do, what your life is. I'm not speaking to a, a, a crowd. Maybe I should have brought somebody in who doesn't know you to talk about this and then he can get on a plane and fly back out. Maybe that would have been, no, it's personal. I, I know you and I, I love you and I, I care about you and there are issues 
within the church and within our marriages and within the way that we live our lives as men and women that do not align with this text. And it's because it's personal that, that makes it such a challenge for us to talk about this together and to look at this together. Because here's the deal. The Word of God does not change. It, it's just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago, as it was in the very beginning. The reality is that the cultural issues on the roles of men and women is not a 21st century thing. Did you know that? This is not just a modern issue, these gender issues, identity issues, marriage issues, role issues. This is not new. In fact, it, it was the air that was breathed as well in ancient, the ancient world too. The reason why we have these passages of Scripture in Ephesians, in, in Colossians, in Titus, in Timothy, why we have all this instruction on here's how men are supposed to behave, here's how women are supposed to behave, is because they were just as confused about it as we are, or as our culture is, rather. This is not a new thing. But my desire, and I know your desire, is that within our church and within the church, that our marriages would, would actually thrive and wouldn't be these kind of mixed messages of we're Christians, but our lives actually reflect the culture. Egalitarianism is the dominant idea of the day. Egalitarianism, egalitarianism is the theological view that not only are people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each person, man or woman, fulfills in the home or within the church or within society. That because we are all, all equal in light of the gospel, that all of a sudden roles and responsibilities just all of a sudden diminish and disappear, and all of a sudden we're the same. There's such an attempt today to normalize and equalize men and women that we have, we have taken it to the level of absurdity, where we're not able only saying, the culture is not only saying that men and women are, are not just equal, but now they're saying there's not even such thing as men and women. You just got to pick, kind of pick one. It's just a cultural thing that's placed upon you. That, that is hyper-egalitarianism. There's not even gender. Don't forget gender roles. It just, it just doesn't exist. That's ridiculous, Right? And so, here's the problem, though. Most of us, I know, in, in this room, if, if you, I'm, I know that you like, probably checked out our website before you came here, and if you actually came here this morning, unless you're here to protest or do something, you're, you're here because you're like, okay, I think that they align. So I, I'm sure that most of us in this room probably are like, yes, there's such thing as men and women. We're all probably, or at least the majority of us, are on the, the same page. But when it comes to an egalitarian view of our marriage, the reality is we're a mixed bunch. Maybe not in what you profess to believe, but in the way you live your life. So it hits us right in the gut. It's 
It's very personal for us. But God's word does not change. So here's what's foundational. What's foundational is in Ephesians 5, 21. Look back with me at the text now. In Ephesians 5, 21, just before Paul turns the attention to the wife and the husband, there has been a thread that has been developing of how the people of God in general are to act. And so a few things that Paul has been addressing, and that is that we are to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So we, we are to be people that are, that are seeking God, that are seeking to draw near to God as he draws near to us. We are seeking to be transformed by his word, by, by being in prayer, by being with one another. We're not influenced by the world so much as we are influenced by God who is dwelling in us, who is working in us by the power of his spirit. It's a whole idea of do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, that is not a judgment or a pronouncement that Christians are not allowed to consume alcohol. It is a contrast between foolish worldly behavior and, and godly um, uh, patterns of life that, that lead to uh, growth in Christ. And then in verse 21, he, he says... Hold on, I'm on the wrong chapter. He says, be filled, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are, these are general kind of things that mark us as the people of God. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. So the context and the foundation behind understanding this idea of wives submitting to their husbands and husbands leading their wives is this idea of mutual submission. So if you've tuned me out from the beginning, ladies, because you're like, I'm not submitting to him no matter what you say this morning, let me help you by understanding that we are as Christians to be submitted to one another. Now that looks differently in different relationships and in different roles, but there is to be this attitude of submission. So, so let's talk about submission for a little bit. To submit is not a pronouncement on value. Submission has nothing to do with intrinsic value. What submission is, in the biblical sense, now, culturally speaking, submission might be one person saying, I'm in charge, and the other person, okay, you know. It, it might be that, that sort of dynamic, but that is driven by sin. But according to Scripture, the idea of submission is not a devaluing, but a putting, uh, uh, putting first the needs and concerns of others above your own. It, it's not an issue of equality, it's an issue of every believer saying that the concerns and the needs of others, my predominantly my brothers and sisters in Christ, and then we'll see how that fits into marriage, is more important. So submission is the opposite of seeking your own will. Submission is the opposite of saying, this is what I deserve. This is what I want. 
And, you, you know, the path to divorce, by the way, since this is technically still a, a thread of thought leading back to divorce, the path of divorce is usually one of two or both people saying, I want what I want, right? It's the nursery making its way all the way to adulthood and into marriage. I'm not happy anymore. You don't make me happy anymore. You don't give me what I want. But Christians are to be marked by saying, you know what? What I want doesn't matter. What I want is for your needs to be taken care of. You remember Philippians 2. It says, do not consider yourself, your own needs, but the needs of others. And compares that type of behavior to Christ. So you want to talk about submission, not having anything to do with equality. Let's look at the Godhead, the Trinitarian nature of God, okay? So we, we believe that God is three, yet he is one. Christians have affirmed that from the beginning. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is three, yet he is one God. Yet, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, says he did not consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he humbled himself taking on the form of a servant. The eternal Son of God gladly and joyfully and willfully submitted to the will of God the Father. Now let me ask you something. Did he become less than the Father and the Spirit? Did he lose one ounce of his equality with the Godhead when he gladfully, gladly and joyfully submitted to the will of the Father? No, no. When he said, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I don't say anything unless the Father tells me to say it. That was the level of submission all the way to the point of death. And the scripture makes it clear that, that no one Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I gladly, I willingly lay it down. If the Son of God could joyfully submit, that makes it pretty clear that according to Scripture, submission has nothing to do with equality, right? Is that a strong enough argument? Some of you are like, yeah. Some of you are like, no, I still, I want what I want. I want it to mean what I want it to mean. So that's the, that's the idea of mutual submission. It, it is, it's humility. It's Christ-like behavior being played out in all of our relationships. So then Paul turns to this dynamic between husbands and wives and says, look, this idea of mutual submission, it gets played out in marriage, and here's how that looks. Here's how that looks. So if you look at the original Greek, it, it actually does not say, and I know we talked about this already, it does not say wives submit to your own husbands. It is so tied to the preceding thought of mutual submission that what it actually reads is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands. The word submit is, is not repeated because it is tied back into this idea of mutual submission. So now Paul is going to address the wives and he's going to address the husbands and say, here's how mutual submission plays out in the role of marriage. Wives, you're up first. Not because you're better. <laughs> Just kidding. Getting back to the equality thing. By the way, Galatians 3.28 makes that whole equality thing clear. 
It says that there is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. Can I, I just, to help you, that has nothing to do with literally there being this neutrality among us. It has nothing to do with roles. It has everything to do with the fact that the gospel is the great leveler of us all. We are all sinners in need of grace, and we are all co-heirs. We are, we are all made uh, partakers of Christ. We are all one flesh. We are all co-heirs of the kingdom of God. So there is equality among us in that sense, but it has nothing to do, again, as I say, with our, our roles within society or within the home. The idea that we're talking about this morning is the opposite of egalitarianism. And because of the air that we breathe in our culture, a couple decades ago, the church put some language about, around it, and, and it's called complementarianism. Complementarianism is such an anti-culture idea that I could not get the WordPress thing to accept complementarianism as a word. It accepted egalitarianism, no problem, but I kept typing it, kept spelling it. It would not accept it. Tried doing Siri and make Siri do it. No. It is so opposite. And here's what it means. Complementarianism is this idea that men and women are created in the image of God and are absolutely equal in essence, in dignity, and in value, but are distinct by divine design. Men and women are to have different, yet complementary roles and responsibilities in the home and the church in accord with God's created order. Now, if you're taking notes, that's a long definition. I can give it to you after, after service. So what does that look like? Sisters, you're, you're up first. Again, we could go more weeks on this. So in light of what we've said, I'm going to keep it as simple as possible. And probably just pique your curiosity more than anything. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Let's just stop right there. Three things, okay? Very simple, three things. Number one, sisters, submission to your husband is offered. It is not demanded. It is offered, it is not demanded, and it is to your own husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands. It does not say, husbands, see to it that your wife submits. We'll, we'll get to you next. It says, wives, in the context of this idea of mutual submission, submit to your husbands. Offer submission to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, we'll get to the as to the Lord part in just a second, but I just want to clarify, it is not something that is demanded of you by your husband. It is something required of you by your God. It is not something that your husband makes you do. It is something that you joyfully and obediently do out of your love for your Lord and your Savior, Jesus Christ. It is not forced upon you by a domineering husband. In fact, if you have a domineering husband who claims to be a Christian, he either does not have the gospel in him or he is seriously misinformed and has no idea what his role is within 
the home. It is not demanded of you. In fact, it's not even hinted to you. It's, it's my job to open the word now and say, wives, this is what it says. Husbands, it's a really bad idea to remind your wives every morning, you know, the word says that you're supposed to submit. So how are we doing with that? That's not going to go very well for you. And in fact, you're not really glorifying or honoring God in doing that, by the way. You're actually doing the opposite. You're being the numbskull that... All right. I've never done that, I promise. Maybe I have. I don't know. I don't want to think about it. Let's keep going. <laughs> it is offered, not demanded. And here's what balances it out. Balances it out. It says, submit to your own husbands. Again, I, I'm just trying to give us an introduction this morning. We'll have to spend some time looking at this some other time together. But your submission is to the husband that is your possession. It's a wonderful balance to this. You are gladly submitting as to the Lord to the husband that you own. Paul says elsewhere that, that his body is yours and your body is his. You possess one another. So it's saying, it's not saying, wives, ladies, you need to be submissive in culture. You need to be submissive to all the men around you in your life. In fact, that, that is not true at all. You are called to gladfully and joyfully, as to the Lord, submit to the husband that belongs to you, that has been given to you as a gift by God. So essentially what you're saying is, here, here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to submit to you because I own you. God gave you to me. He brought us together. We're one flesh. And he told me to submit to you. And because you are mine and no one else's, because nobody else is, is playing out this dynamic with you, it's just you and me in your mind, I'm going to submit to you out of reverence for my Lord, for his glory, and for our flourishing. Second, it is an act of submission to the Lord. Your submission to the leadership of your husband, and maybe, may I add, you, his imperfect leadership, right? That's, that's not a, you know, I'm not beating up on the guys. Like, we, we are all imperfect, we are not going to lead perfectly as husbands. Your submission to your husband is an act ultimately of submission to the Lord. Your submission to the leadership of your husband is ultimately an act of love to Christ because he has commanded you to submit to your husband. And you remember what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, you will what? You can say it. You're like, I don't know. Keep my commandments obey if you love me here's how you show it obey my word obey my word so your submission to your husband is ultimately an act of love to christ it is an obedience to christ's command for you to submit to your husband and here's what that means predominantly is that your submission to your husband is ultimately a submission to christ which means your true submission is to christ which means if your husband, whom you are following, is leading you into patterns of sin, your first responsibility is to your Lord. 
And so you don't blindly follow your husband as he leads you into foolishness. It doesn't mean that you remain silent as he makes a fool of you both and leads your family astray. In fact, you are, you are assigned to him as a helpmate. So speak up. It's a submission to Christ. And then thirdly, submission to your husband is a divine calling. If it is from the Lord to you, it is not something that is to make you miserable, but it is a wonderful and glorious, it, it is a divine calling given to women. Husbands cannot experience what it is like to fulfill the role of a wife in a marriage. It is a divine calling that just you get to experience. Only you get to experience what it's like to, in this life, show forth what the church is like to Christ every day of your life. We don't get to do that. That, that is a divine calling. Let me give you a, a definition. We'll move on to the guys and then we'll close. Submission is the divine calling for a woman to honor and affirm her husband's leadership through her unique gifts to help him to fulfill it, that is his leadership, as an act of worship and obedience to Christ. You see, ladies, it has nothing to do with your husband. It has nothing to do with him deserving it. It has nothing to do with him being worthy of it. It has everything to do with your Savior being worthy of obedience and trust. And knowing that just as he's working on your heart, he is also working on your husband as well. You're trusting that even though you might not be able to see it. Okay? So how do you do that, ladies? I'm going to say this briefly. Um, 1 Timothy 5.1 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers. And Paul is writing to a young elder and pastor, Timothy, and he says, address younger women as sisters in all purity. So sisters and mothers, let me address you just for a moment. H how do you actually do this? Scripture makes it clear. I'm going to take you to two places. The first one is Titus 2.24. You can write that down. You can study up on it more later, Titus 2.24. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is Paul writing to Titus. In love and in steadfastness, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. So, so here's how you are being trained, ladies, by the older women in your life, or you should have been trained and probably weren't. But here's what you are to be doing. To love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. That is Titus 2.24. That is not my definition of what a woman ought to be doing. That is Titus 2.24 as what the role of a woman is in the home and society. Train young women to love their husbands and love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive so that the word of God not, might not be reviled. Now here's what I know 
I know that at least half of you ladies get up every Monday morning, you drop your children off or your husbands do at daycare and you go off to work. And when you do that, you disobey the word of God. There, there is no other way for me to, to describe it. Your divine calling given by God is to love your husbands. And if God blesses you and allows you to have children, rear your children in the things of the Lord and to create and cultivate a home that looks wildly different than a household in this broken world. That is something that, that you have been commanded by God for the good of you and humanity to do. Now, I understand that that has not been what has been taught in the church. That is not, of course, what is appropriate in society. And, and many of you ladies have gotten yourselves into positions where you actually couldn't immediately fix this even if you wanted to. But it doesn't mean that we should not, when we hear the word of God, begin to correct and, and, and reorient our lives as we move forward or, or at least, at very least, train the women that are coming up underneath you to not take the path that you have done. So that maybe, maybe in the future of the church, we might have another generation of Christian households that put this on display rightly. Your job is to create a home. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not enterprising. If you, if you go to Proverbs 31, you get this like standard of like the perfect woman and the perfect wife. And you know what? Her husband as, is known as her husband in the courts. Or, did I say that right? Yeah, if somebody meets the husband in the court, he doesn't say, well, who's your wife? He says, oh, you're her husband. That's, that's how much she's getting after it. She's buying fields, planting vineyards. She's enterprising. She's doing all of this stuff. She's not just stuck at home, you know, knitting clothes. She's, she is going for it. But her primary aim is, is to develop a home for her family. In 1 Timothy 5, 14 and 15, Paul is addressing the issue with young widows and saying, don't stay as widows. Kind of get back into this. And he says, younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Back in Titus 2.24, it says, do all of that, live your life in this way, that the word of God may not be reviled. So here's the issue. And I'll, I'll just say this one more time, bluntly, clearly, and then we'll move on. Ladies, men, when our households don't look like this, we publicly say we do not have to obey all of the word of God. Can it be said any other way? When we don't live this out, we publicly say to the world, there are parts of Scripture that we love and parts of Scripture that we disagree with. Paul says, live this way. Remember, he's dealing with a similar kind of culture. Live this way so that the word of God won't be reviled. So that the adversary won't be given any... So when people look at our lives and our marriages, they say, why are you guys doing this so differently than everyone else? Husbands, maybe we're going on to week four. I don't know. 
I'll decide that next week, but let me just, can I put it this way? Ladies, I'm sorry that you got the, I should have went with husbands first. <clears throat> okay, husbands, love your wives. The kids are actually being pretty quiet, so I'm going to keep going. You're starting to shake, kids, like, make noise. Dad's spanking the kid. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> okay, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, here's, what, here's your role. Here's your job. Your job is to submit to the good of your wife. Your job is to put the needs of your wife, the sanctification of your wife, the purification of your wife, the joy of your wife in Christ above every need that you have. Your job is to love your, your wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church. So how do you do that? Be intentionally sacrificial. Be intentionally sacrificial. Christ did not stumble into sacrificing his life for the church. He was intentional with forethought in eternity past in sacrificially loving his wife. I don't think that there is one thing that I do for my wife that is a sacrificial that I don't actually actively think to do. Because if I'm just being honest, what I actively think to do is say, I want what I want, right? The old nature is still in there just nagging, saying, we need to, I want to be happy. Be intentionally sacrificial in your love towards your spouse. And if you're not married... Start preparing to do this by sacrificially loving others around you. Second, cultivate the ground for spiritual growth. Cultivate the ground for spiritual growth. Husbands, it is your job to create an environment in which your wife and also your children are able to thrive spiritually. It is your job, it is our job as husbands that our wives, for it's almost as Paul is saying, put your own sanctification on the back burner and make your wife's sanctification your primary goal. Now that, of course, is impossible because without you being sanctified, you're never going to actually do that. But the way you submit to your wife is not just demanding she submits to you, but you submit to her by her every care and every need her joy, her happiness being your predominant responsibility. So men, here's what we do. We have a tendency to either domineer, don't we? Oh, you're supposed to be submitting. You're supposed to be doing this. Or be passive and come home, turn on the TV, grab something, and sit down and check out. I provided. I went to work. Da-da-da-da-da. Cultivate the ground for spiritual growth. Submit to every need of your wife. Submit to every need of your wife. Now, I, I don't think I need to elaborate on this much further because I think we know this, don't we, men? We know this because more than the ladies, I think we've turned to this passage of Scripture. We've read this. We've seen this at men's conferences and stuff like that, and we always go away going, oh. But let me tell you, if you commit yourself to drawing near to the Lord, 
time in his word, time in prayer, time with the people of God, if you start there, I guarantee you that you will begin to see your priorities start to reorient themselves to fit this goal. This is the biblical mandate for marriage. This is what we are called to do as men and women. Women cultivating a home, raising children, caring for their husband, caring for their children. Husbands being providers, being protectors, loving and submitting to the care and the need of their wife and of their children. And as we do this, what the world sees and what we experience is a picture of the way that Christ sacrificially gave himself up for us, that we would be without spot or wrinkle or blemish, that we would be made whole, and that we would be with him as he sacrificially and joyfully leads us now and forevermore. This is God's good design for marriage. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we all should now together confess our, our, uh, the challenges with this and our failures to do this perfectly. We, we know that none of us can or, or ever will be able to perfectly display this picture. We, we get that, but I ask, Lord, that you would help us, help the marriages in this church to more and more put this on display. I pray that we would not use excuses, that we wouldn't desire other things, but we would desire to see our lives reflect more um, of who we are now, citizens of, of heaven. And I ask, Lord, that you would help each, uh, each man and woman here to know how to, how to do that, Lord, I recognize our lives are all, all over the place and um, our situations are all over the place, but I, I know that you, we know that you know exactly where we are. You knew that we would be here this morning. You knew when and how this would uh, land on our ears. And so I, I pray, Lord, that you would, um, well, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work of illumination and sanctification in each one of us. I pray that the marriages in your church would magnify your name for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's, uh, let's sing now and response, and then we'll be dismissed.